Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. G'day and welcome to this bonus episode of the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Coming at you from, well, I could be anywhere in the Islamic world right now. I could be in Islamabad or downtown Dakar in Bangladesh. Or I could be in Frankston and Melbourne or the Kemba in Sydney. In fact, I'm in Tower Hamlets in the east end of London where 32% of the population comes from Bangladesh and most of the rest come from other third world countries. Now these people came here presumably seeking a better life and for all I know they found it. But as you can see around me there hasn't been a great attempt to assimilate into British culture let alone adopt British values. In fact it's considered dangerous around these parts to wear a Remembrance Day poppy. I was pretty reluctant to wear one myself actually but anyway we'll see how that turns out. The reason for that is that the poppy is associated with colonialism which of course is an evil thing when it's Britain exporting democracy and freedom to the rest of the world but not such a bad thing when it's third world migrants bringing their inferior culture to the great cities of Europe. The inferiority of that culture has been on vivid display for the past month at protest march after protest march right across western liberal democracies but especially here in Britain calling for the genocide of the Jewish people and in favor of Hamas a terrorist organization now those marches may well reach something of a crescendo this Sunday when a massive march goes from Hyde Park through the center of London to the United States embassy at the same time that the king Charles lays a wreath at the cenotaph in remembrance of those who died for our freedoms. I'll be here to cover that for you on ADH TV and I've got to say I feel pretty pessimistic about the way it's going to turn out. We are at a civilizational moment and it seems like the west has lost its cojones just at the same time when migrants from the third world have found theirs. Anyway, just as a reminder of what of the wonders of western civilization, here is a conversation I recorded last week between Jacinta Nampajimpa Price, the Northern Territory Senator, 
and Oxford ethicist Nigel Bigar, two people from absolutely opposite ends of the spectrum and from very different walks of life in furious agreement about the wonders of Western civilization and the benefits it has bestowed on Australia, especially in relation to the voice to parliament debate. Well, hello, it's Fred Paul here from ADH TV. We are at the Association for Responsible Citizenship conference in London, uh, which is meant to be, among other things, an incubator for great meetings of great minds, especially uh, conservative ones. And uh, you are about to witness one right now. I can't tell you how excited I am. To my left is Professor Nigel Bigger, who released a book earlier this year called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. And uh, he will modestly uh, probably deny it, but I think he played a small role in the result uh, of our federal election to get rid of the uh, despised uh, Indigenous voice to Parliament. To my right, uh, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price needs no introduction. She is the Northern Territory Senator for the Country Liberal Party, who pretty much spearheaded the uh, the fight um, against this uh, disliked referendum, and uh, it has spawned a magnificent political career. And uh, she could go on to uh, enormous things uh, in the near future. But I'm very excited for these two people to discuss. What, um, how we came to win this referendum, it was against the odds, and, uh, and for them to compare notes because Nigel is a, an ethicist from Oxford, very, uh, very uh, intellectual and uh, bookish chap, if he wouldn't mind, <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. And Jacinta, of course, grew up on the, uh, in, in uh, some pretty mean suburbs in, Northern, in the Northern Territory and uh, is a hard-fighting politician as a result. Now, Nigel, I'll ask, I'll ask the first question of you. You naturally would be in defence of colonialism, but can you, because you're, well, you're Scottish, but you're, um, but you're being an Oxford ethicist, you wrote what is pretty much a cost-benefit analysis of colonialism in Australia. Can you summarise it for us? Okay. Well, first of all, um, um, Fred, most white ag academics do not support colonialism. I do, so <laughs> I'm unusual Indeed. in that respect. But um, uh, my view of colonialism, uh, European colonialism and British colonialism is it, it, it did both good and bad. Um, so um, the, the reason that Europeans and, and Brits ended up in North America and Australia in the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s, was simply that Europeans had developed the maritime technology to, to cross oceans. If, if Aboriginal peoples or native peoples in North America had done the same, that would have happened too. And um, Brits came to Australia not wanting to cause trouble. They came first of all for scientific reasons when uh, James Cook made his first expedition. And then of course to, to, um, to transport convicts, which might not sound very creditable, but the alternative to transportation was hanging. Right. In those days, right. yeah. it was relatively humane. Well, us Australians <laughs> think that they were the lucky ones anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, uh, uh, whether in, in Australia or North America, uh, I mean, the impact of, of uh, the coming of European modernity was, was, was tough on native peoples because the, the cultural gap was vast. Mm. Um, uh, and if it hadn't been the Brits arriving in Australia, it would have been the French or the, or the Americans. It, it was going to come. 
and it was going to be tough. Now, Jacinta, there was a key moment during the debate when you delivered a speech at the National Press Club, and it was a magnificent speech. I was there. I was uh, very uh, honoured to have been in the audience. But um, the media there were clearly out to uh, get their their 10-second grab, and uh, they did it when one of them asked you, did the Indigenous people of Australia benefit from colonisation? Now, mm. tell us what you said in reply to that and how that blew up in the media. <laughs> well, the question that was asked of me was whether I thought there were any uh, ongoing negative effects uh, due to colonisation. And my response was no. I, I don't believe there are any ongoing negative um, effects of colonisation because we're at a stage uh, in our country where everyone is sort of benefiting from the result of colonisation. I mean, it, I guess more toward uh, modernisation is what we're all living with at, at the moment. And, you know, if I contrast that with the life that my grandparents lived, uh, where it was kill or be killed, uh, where uh, life was harsh living in the desert, um, you know, you, 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 had to, you had to be tough. Uh, and. You know, you were up against your um, your traditional enemies, who quite often um, you were uh, uh, fought with, and you would take their lives. They would take your life. Um, you know, as a woman, particularly, you know, we were married off in arranged marriages. We were expected. We, we were the bottom of. We're at the bottom of the ladder when it comes to um, hierarchy, um, especially for young girls. Uh, life was brutal, and <laughs> compared that life to the life that we live now in today is a, a lot easier. Um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't at all denying that there were effects of colonisation, but at this stage uh, in our country right now in Australia, uh, you know, we have access to all the things that the modern world can provide to improve our lives. You know, uh, infant mortali mortality has um, reduced. Uh, life expectancy has increased. While it's not the best, those things have occurred as a result of um, what has taken place. And you know what? I wouldn't exist if it wasn't Indeed. for colonisation. And a lot of those with Indigenous heritage wouldn't, in fact, be around today. What I find remarkable about the people who are so negative about Australia is that all you have to do is look around and see what we have created in 235 years. It's, I mean, you just walk around Circular Quay and look at the bridge and the, and the Opera House. I mean, we have... Western civilization has been so clearly and manifestly beneficial beneficial to everyone who, who lives there, who was born there and who migrated there. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and we, there are many Australians, I believe, should, we should be far more grateful of what it, what, what it is we do have in our country. Um, and we are one of the luckiest nations on the face of the earth. And I guess I wanted to put the media in their place also. I, I well, you did a good job of them <laughs> suggesting <laughs> that I'm some kind of victim because of my racial heritage, and I won't have any of that. <laughs> I'm going to get back to the voice in a second, but Nigel, I want to ask you, one of the key points in your book uh, was that some it, it's undeniable and it's actually quite a prosaic truth that some cultures are simply better than others. Yes, well, you've got to be careful about that because um, it, it can give rise to arrogance and, mm. and condescension towards other peoples. But my view is it's patently true that, um, let's say, in, in 1800 or 1850, uh, European cultures relative to 
Native Canadians or, or um, Bantu Africans or Aboriginal peoples in terms of science and technology, in terms of medicine, were superior. It, it doesn't mean they were superior in every respect, and no doubt every, every culture uh, has something to be said in favour of it, and certainly Aboriginals w were better at surviving in their environment than Europeans were, whether in, in Australia or Africa. Um, but I, I think one, one, we need to get past this notion that to assert that a, a culture is superior to another in certain respects is racist. It's not. It, it's a fact. It's a fact. Uh, and so, just to, to build on what you were saying uh, before, Fred, um, I mean, when people say to me, what did the British Empire achieve? One thing I'll say to them is, look, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand are among the most prosperous and liberal countries on earth. That didn't happen from nowhere. And yes, when, when uh, Brits and Ab Aboriginals uh, first encountered each other, because of the cultural gap, there was mistrust, misunderstanding and violence. And it's taken a long time to, 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 to build trust. But the, the liberal ideal of, of integrating all the people, Aboriginal or European, into society on equal terms is, is a, a noble ideal. And it's been largely achieved, even if there are um, uh, communities in remote parts of Australia where the Aboriginal peoples still suffer disadvantages, and that needs to be addressed. But not by trying to, 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 to go back to 200 the need, years. The need to address it is a Western civilization concept in itself. You know, we are co constantly trying to improve our, it, our, it, our it, society. It's a liberal humanitarian uh, um, uh, endeavour, absolutely. Now, Jacinta, mm. it, given the tenor of the debate over the voice, what Professor Bigard just said then, according to some of the people who supported the voice, that would be deemed offensive. Now, it's not, is it? Well, uh, you know, one has to take offence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one has to choose, choose to, to be offended. And we're too focused on um, not upsetting people uh, and then people taking the opportunity to be offended, to shut down, you know, debate and conversation. But we, ne we, we need it. We need that for society pr to progress forward. And at the moment, we're not getting that because certainly the left have uh, a narrative that they thought that they've captured the, na the nation with and from that and, and I think the purpose of the referendum was about a transfer of power to a, a handful of elites um, who, who uh, wouldn't put their hand up and run for the democratic process and to become elected members themselves but want the same stature and the same power that comes with uh, with that and that's what the whole idea with the voice was and they've largely disregarded the plight of our most marginalised because we're not even allowed to speak about the real reasons behind the marginalisation of Indigenous Australians and the, the elements of traditional culture that I've certainly grown up and had lived experience in um, because those uh, that have captured that narrative have never actually lived those lives themselves. Mm. Um, but have benefited largely from colonisation. Indeed, Indeed yes. <laughs> um, so it, it's a contradiction in itself that they want to be part of a system, you know, this, this, this Western system, in a way that they're, they're trying to utilise, um, you know, strategy, strategise through the Western system to gain power, um, which they'd never have, would have come about, you know, in traditional terms. It, it, they're using the tools of Western society in order to further themselves and at the, on the same token suggesting that um, 
you know, that Indigenous Australians are not supposed to... Uh, are supposed different. To, yeah, and, and should remain yeah. as museum pieces. Well, yes, and that leads me to my question for you, Professor, and that is that I think the, the, the Indigenous voice to Parliament, in, taken in the historical context, we really dodged a bullet as a country because Australia was founded at the height of the Enlightenment and according to Enlightenment principles, the, the, the most fundamental of which is that all people are equal. Yep. And this referendum was to, would have been a line in the sand saying, actually, no, they're not. So, so there, there are two thoughts I have about the voice to parliament. One is, of course, it was supposed to be a voice of the, of the Aboriginal people. Mm. But then, as Jacinto has indicated, there are different Aboriginal people, some in remote communities, some uh, 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 fully integrated into Australian society and professional people. Uh, does, the, does the voice represent them all? That's one thing. Second thing is that this notion that those who were there first get special privileges, <laughs> yeah. because it struck, it struck me when thinking about it, okay, Aboriginal people were there first, the Brits came next, then large numbers of Chinese and Indians. Do, do the Brits get privileges relative to the Chinese and Indians? Mm. Good question. Uh, so so there's this notion that somehow those who were there first should have special representation, who's going to represent them, and by the way, they're not all the same. Mm. All sorts of problems mm. that, that, that the, this, this notion attracts. Mm. Well, I love the fact that an ethicist from Oxford and a an Indigenous senator from the Northern Territory can agree so furiously on something and, uh, <laughs> and we can rejoice in the fact that Australia has really dodged a bullet with this voice to Parliament. I'm Fred Paul. This is uh, from ADH. We are at the Association for Responsible Citizenship. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Well, that was Jacinta Nampajinpa Price and Professor Nigel Bigger. What a fantastic conversation. I'm now at a pub in Wimbledon, and I've got to say, it feels like a different city from where we recorded that earlier that scene earlier today, and it may as well be. I should point out, though, that I did manage to walk for a kilometre along Whitechapel Road, uh, wearing my Remembrance Day poppy, and I didn't manage, I didn't get abused, but I did, I must say, I did get a few... Uh, dirty looks and that certainly wouldn't have been the case if I'd been wearing a Jewish yarmulk or carrying an Israeli flag. I probably wouldn't have got out of there alive and that's the point. We are now living at a time when it is widely accepted that Jewish people can't go to certain parts of our cities. This is not what Western civilization is meant to be about and we should all be alarmed and ashamed by that. Of course, all of this came to the surface as a result of the Hamas attack on civilians in southern Israel a month ago. It's pretty uncommon to get unfiltered information about what's going on down there, but one person who will give you some pretty candid observations about it is Australian journalist from Rebel News, Avi Yumini, who visited there recently, and I interviewed him about it just last week. Have a listen. G'day, Fred Paul here from ADH-TV. We are here at the Association for Responsible Citizenship and I've just bumped into Australia's leading proponent of irresponsible citizenship, Avi Yamini from Rebel News. I was going to say. <laughs> How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks good, for having me. Good to see you. Now, I want to talk to you about your trip to Israel. You, it was quite a, quite a, a well-publicised and prominent trip and a little bit controversial back at home, I think but everything you do is controversial mm -hmm. anyway. But give us a little insight. There was, uh, straight after October 7th, there was an influx 
of uh, Jewish people and support of Israel actually going into Israel, wasn't there? Yeah, totally. I was so shocked uh, that my flight in was, I was expecting to have a whole row. I was excited, <laughs> but it was every seat was taken. So yeah. people going back, a lot of uh, men that didn't have to, but felt like they it was their duty to fly back and join the reserves and be on the front line, in fact. Well, you have, you've been in the reserves there, did you? Oh, was I've, that been in, the res- I've been in the army. You've been in the army. Yeah. Was it in the back of your mind that you might have to fight if you went No, back? because I knew that um, I never did the reserves. So every Israeli does every year, mm-hmm. uh, approximately a month every year. I never did it um, because I moved back to Australia after my service. And um, I, I tried to join back just for reserves about, oh, I think it was probably 10 years ago now. So eight years after I'd served, and, or a few, say six years after I'd finished or something, and they wouldn't take me on. And, and to be fair, I probably would have been more of a hazard to my, <laughs> my comrades and I would have been helpful. Well, that's just, right. Well, very patriotic of yeah. you not to serve then. Yeah. Now, now, Avi, um, you were, your, your response to that attack on October 7 was pretty uh, reflexive. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you posted a comment something, saying something like, I don't believe what the media is about to say about this, so I'm going over to report about it myself. Now, you you have this natural antipathy and scepticism about the mainstream media, even at a time like this. Now, yeah. how justified is that scepticism? Well, just look what happened over the last couple of weeks. I knew it. I watched, I watched it unfold. The world witnessed, right? And most people on this planet, except for extremists, uh, whether they were far-left extremists or Islamic extremists or, or, or the fringe of the right, everybody's reaction to it was of disgust. Whether it, and I'm talking about the centre, the left, the right. Everybody was disgusted and horrified by that attack um, that left 1,400 mostly civilians dead, butchered. You know, they went house to house hunting, raping, butchering, kidnapping. Still at the moment, there's at least 229 of them left in Gaza that are um, uh, hostages. So most people's response in the first two days was as you'd hope. But I knew, and I didn't sleep, I I watched that unfold live. You could see it online. I knew about what was going on there before my brothers that lived there knew. That, you know, it took them a few hours to catch up in in Israel because it was 6.30 in the morning. And by 6.45 a.m. I was already watching live videos and could not believe what was going, what was unfolding. And, um, but I knew... You knew it was gonna get twisted. Yeah, I knew that this isn't gonna last. There's no way, like everybody's horrified by the images coming out, but there's no way that they're gonna stand by Israel longer than two days, no matter how many Jews they butcher, Mm. and no matter how horrific and barbaric the act was. So I, you know, it was not the ideal time in my life to go, but I dropped everything and 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 I went there. Yeah, so tell us about what it was like landing there and mm. um, where did you go to first? You went straight south, didn't you? Yeah, straight yeah. south. Okay. So yeah, I, I, I caught the flight. Um, it was packed. We got there. We went. I stayed in Jerusalem for a couple of days, um, but head straight south. Like Because I just wasn't sure mm. what anything was because there were still terrorists out on the, on the loose in, you know, they went as far as Beersheba. So... Um, I, I stayed in Jerusalem a couple of days and just drove south every day, but I realized, nah, we've just What's moved. the mood like in Israel? Are they frightened or? So when I arrived there, the first week, there was barely a person on the street. Mm. People were scared, they were locked in the house, there were still terrorists you know, roaming. Mm. And people just didn't know 
people lost faith, I think, a little bit in the in the intelligence and the, the, the army, and I can understand why, because nothing like this has ever happened. And they were shocked to their core. Like, I was shocked to my core in Australia. Imagine mm. if you lived there and that was, you know, one thing Israelis believed in was their, their defense system and mechanisms to protect them. And on that day, it failed them for whatever, and there's plenty, um, p- plenty of opinions as to what happened. But the consensus is nobody actually cares, in Israel, nobody actually cares why yet. They think it's an imp- they're important questions to be answered, super important to understand how, who, let the, who dropped the ball or who intentionally did something, whatever it is, they want to know all those answers. But they all said to me, everyone uh, across the board says, but right now we've got to actually win this war to be able to even answer that question, because that question won't matter if we lose. Yeah, it's a matter of priorities, yeah. isn't it? Now, Israel, modern Israel, uh, particularly over the past, say, decade, decade or so, has kind of developed a reputation as being quite a liberal, small L liberal mm. place. Has this shocked them out of those sort of liberal delusions and, uh, and, and luxuries? Um, so, yeah, it, it, it did get that, it, it has attracted that kind of thing but also you got to remember the last year and a a year and a half i guess has been a little bit different there's been you know major protests in israel as probably the most right-wing government um after you know years of turmoil and and change of government every second week and new elections i think they had five elections in two years Mm. um they finally had what is considered the most right-wing government in in its history since 1948 um but yeah, it, it, I think um, something that was interesting this time that I noticed the shift was, didn't matter who you talk to, whether it was a lefty or a right winger, everybody, firstly, everybody was um, doing what they can. The country was united. So from such a divided country on a personal human level, didn't matter where you fit on the spectrum of politics, everybody was donating their time, their money, whatever service, whatever abilities they had to help um, in this fight, so you had you have small businesses just offering free food to soldiers. You had, um, you know, uh, we had trucks that were people's personal trucks. They packed with food and just went to outside bases and started clothes. There was uh, pop up uh, um, goods like that were just being offered to everyone because you got to remember that in the south, what happened? So I was in Netivot and there was this like pop up. Uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a essential needs kind, mm-hmm. kind of stuff where it, um, all the, everything was donated, the people were volunteers and th- what originally happened was when the first victims came from those southern kibbutzim, they came to Netivot and you know, a lot of people, half their family was butchered, they had nothing, they left their, you know, they, uh, they were describing people coming without their shoes on because they were, oh. they were in bed, it was 6.30am, <sighs> so they had nothing and so they, they, they were able to get some um, food, you know, products for the babies, uh, clothes, everything they have there. And, and then as the wars uh, um, developed and now it's no longer those victims from the from the kibbutzim, but now it's like everybody's got somebody at home and, and generally the man of the house has gone off to fight. So uh. now you have all, the, it, it's like a country of single women taking care of their babies. So you've got, uh. so, so now it's turned into that. Yeah. On every level, it's united. I think people, um, doesn't matter who you talk to, they all, everyone in Israel believes 
this is the red line and Hamas needs to be dealt with once and for all. And you know, that conversation, um, that you gotta remember that those those kibbutzim that got hit were actually very left, kibbutzim and left wing. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah they're essentially little communes, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So, so, and, and, and along that border, they, they were like peace activists. Mm. And yeah. uh, even even the party, the Nova Festival, is considered like a peace. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think this shocked people out of that delusion yeah. that you can find a peace partner with terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, 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 yeah, all the Gaza Strip until it's, you know, until Hamas is gone. Yeah. So tell us about, I mean, so you headed south. How close did you get to Gaza? Uh, probably the closest was a few hundred metres to the border. Really? And what did you see? Um, so early days were different too. So in the early days, just after the attack, we got there, I think Wednesday. In those days, we were under very you know there was a point where there were drones dropping munitions like right next to us and chasing kind of anything moving wow. so and you just had soldiers shooting at it like it was just that um one of the alarming things i, I discovered about the people who lived near gaza is that they weren't armed yeah because gaza was always considered so Oh, before 2005, there were settlements in Gaza. That was a bit like the West Bank is now. And that, those guys were armed. But mm. when they returned Gaza for peace, um, so it's a closed border. You have one crossing, which with permits, Palestinians could come and work through. And that's the, yep. the, a lot of those people that came in uh, were actually the ones that fed all the information of it, the houses, mm. the maps. They drew everything out for Hamas. The, the maps were found on the terrorists in their pocket, um, which makes you now understand what you know why there has to, why a lot of israelis argue don't let them in yeah but um well let me just delve into that because the the, the contrast between the, the the sort of mentality of of the two different sides is just it's just chalk and cheese the contrast is enormous i mean israelis want peace mm. and they are prepared to make concessions at every opportunity i mean it was only recently they opened the border up for people who, because Gazans are so poor and there's no industry there, they're letting people come and go to work in Israel, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. And I spoke to an Australian uh, um, uh, um, philanthropist recently who started up a charity that picked up kids from the from the gate at Gaza who were sick and needed uh, hospital attention in uh, oh, I forgot the name of the hospital, but it's in Jerusalem. Yeah. They picked up, you know, these are all volunteers. The medical uh, services were provided for free and then delivered back to Gaza. And the objective was that, you know, people who, who interact with each other eventually won't want to go to war against each other. But it seems like it doesn't matter what Israel's or the, the, the Israeli people do, they are always going to be uh, susceptible or vulnerable to someone from inside Gaza or the West Bank just turning their goodwill into terror yeah and it's a problem like what do you do and that's what i say you know now you hear so many of the um i call them twitter experts that want to give their opinion on, and and condemn israel for the handling now of you know of hamas essentially mm. the the enemy that that perpetrated this you know heinous war crimes 
um, and still ongoing. Let's not forget the hostages Indeed. that are still there. Indeed. Um, and they want to judge Israel's response to it. Well, I, I, imagine that was you. Imagine that was Australia and well, and the some answers Indonesian. are all the answers all belong to Hamas. Really, they, they didn't have to attack in the first place. They didn't have to take hostages. They didn't have to kill civilians. They could release the hostages. They could let the civilians, uh, you know, get away from the military targets. Every possible solution is in the hands of Hamas. Um, Henry Ergas in The Australian a couple of weeks ago made a very good point, and that is that um, even at their worst, the Nazis were conscious of the fact that what they were doing broke fundamental moral principles, and they often tried to hide their crimes. I mean, they, they weren't, you know, they weren't making their concentration. They weren't streaming it online. They live. weren't streaming it online. So we are now dealing with a level of depravity that most people are unfamiliar with from, you know, from the Middle Ages onwards. Mm. I mean, so how can, I mean, it must be frustrating you being Jewish and having reported extensively and quite fairly from the, uh, from the, from the war zone, it must be so frustrating when you see hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets supporting what is essentially a terrorist organisation. It's crazy. And look, for years I've been used to the idea of uh, the majority of the Islamic community doing that. You'd think in this case when a terrorist organisation perpetrates such horrific acts, at least they will condemn that you know, and maybe they can still protest. You, you can do both. Yes. You could say, yeah. I'm not happy with the way the Palestinians have been treated and we can have that conversation or debate. Yeah. But surely you're going to condemn the treatment of civilians so blatantly, especially when you, when you, when you say the Israelis treat civilians so badly, yet mm. here you have, and you never provide the actual real evidence. Obviously, often it's, it's you know, like we saw in the hospital, it's like mm. it distorted stuff or it's, it's just fake news that, yes. that, that, and, and it's just based on the word meant to rely on the word of terrorists but here you had the terrorists streaming their crimes live yeah. and it's not and it wasn't only and this is what has shocked a lot of Israelis is that it wasn't only Hamas Hamas led the charge butchered the people on the way like to clear the path for them what was car loaded upon car load of civilians who some who perpetrated some of the most horrific acts, like some of the raping and the mm. and the butchery and the beheadings and that that was actually civilians of Gaza that did those. Um, so the fact that you see Islamic community doing that is hard enough. Then mm. you see the socialist left who pretend to campaign against racism, marching alongside these extremists that are chanting "gas the Jews." Mm. You know, yeah. in Sydney, we literally saw socialists yeah. there at that same rally where they chanted gas and juice. And then on top of that, you have this extreme element now within the right that also has have joined in, uh, uh, forces with both the the the, the, le the far left and and these uh, jihadi kind of groups. It's a scary time. Let's talk about Australia because you know I've I've, I've seen I've noticed this growing. Uh, presence of, uh, of, let me say, a, a demographic that sympathises with terrorism, shall we yeah. put it that yeah. way. I think during COVID, we kind of lulled ourselves into a bit of a false sense of security because mm. a lot of people were conscious of the fact that there was an element within Australia that actually pretty much and openly said they don't like Australia yeah. and they would, uh, they would happily change it uh, to something fundamentally different to what it was founded to ever be. 
We are now more aware than ever that those people are sort of numerous and active. What do we do? What do we do about that? I mean, you get out on the streets a lot. You're, an mm. act, you're, you're a very active journalist and uh, you don't take a backward step and you often encounter people who, yeah. who have, um, uh, acro let me say, uh, an, an acrimonious attitude, if I could put it that way. What do we do about it, Avi? You're on the front line. I have been it? warning about this for years and I was called every name under the sun. I, they slurred and it's funny, those same people who called me a racist are happily today, yeah, you know, participating in racism against one of the big, the, the smallest minority in the world. Yeah. Um, what do we do? I don't know. We made a lot of mistakes. Is it too late? I don't know. Mm. Look at London. We're here in London right now. There's 100,000 people here marched with jihadi flags over the weekend. I'm probably more scared to walk these streets. I'm more conscious about my security walking these streets than I was in southern Israel um, being fired on because I knew, you know, I knew there at least the Jews have an army. Right. There's yep. somebody to defend them. Yep. There's there's the um, Iron Dome. There's there's the shelter. The army was active by the time I was there. That you know, we got into pretty sticky situations there. That not not all of it caught on camera. We were trying to drive as close as we could to Gaza at one point, and it was nighttime, and we ended up at a, um, a, a a makeshift checkpoint with guns drawn on us because they didn't know who we were, and there were there were actual terrorists out there in the sticks. Wow. So. Um, but but he gave once I talk to him and that it gives you a sense of security like they're yes. there they're present yeah. they're looking for the terrorists yeah. they're fighting they're they're there to defend. Well, so the so the irony there is that Israel is the more liberal Western democratic country than here in England, which mm. is the birthplace of democracy. Yeah, it's ironic, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Avi Yemeni, thanks for coming thanks on for ADH TV. Me, well, as we say often on this show, the truth vindicates. The only variable is whether the person speaking the truth lives long enough to witness the vindication. Which wasn't the case with the British Conservative politician Enoch Powell. Powell was a classical Greek scholar, poet and author who impressed a lot of academics and won a lot of prizes when he studied at Cambridge University in the early 1930s. He was appointed at the age of 25 professor of Greek at Sydney University in 1937, but he only stayed for a year because he could see that war was about to erupt in Europe and he wanted to join the British Army, which he did, uh, start entering the army as a private and ending the war as a brigadier, one of only two soldiers to receive that many promotions during the war. He then became a conservative politician. And in 1968, he delivered a speech to a Birmingham branch of the Conservative Party, which was later dubbed the Rivers of Blood speech. In it, Powell quoted the Vir Virgil's poem, the Aeneid, which in which Virgil, envisaging a war, pictured the river Tiber foaming with much blood. Powell was referring specifically to the 1968 Race Relations Act, which itself was an extension of the 1965 Race Relations Act, which made it illegal in Britain to incite hatred against anyone based, based on their ethnicity. The 1968 version of the bill added employment and accommodation to the bill. So from that point on, 
it was illegal to discriminate against migrants when providing accommodation or jobs. Powell's foreboding was based on his observation that Britons were starting to feel like strangers in their own land. As far as Powell was concerned, discrimination was a private matter. If you didn't want people of a certain ethnicity living in your neighbourhood, that was your prerogative. This legislation might have made all Britons, whether migrant or native-born, equal before the law, but it also withdrew the obligation of migrants to assimilate into British society. That has been considered a right of migrants in, in places like Australia and Britain ever since. Despite all his many achievements and valour, Powell spent the last 30 years of his life as a, as a synonym for racism and bigotry. The irony is that in this multicultural society, there are places in our cities where Jews are not welcome and would be ill-advised to visit. So much for the openness and tolerance of the multicultural society that, that, the, that the Race Relations Act was supposed to create. As I said earlier, there's a good chance that all this acrimony will spill over into violence on the streets of London this weekend. London authorities are doing their best to make sure that that doesn't happen, but the way they are approaching it is only dealing with the symptoms. The true cause of, this, of this, all this civic acrimony and unrest is yet to be addressed. If Powell was alive today, he'd say, I told you so. Well, that's all from me from this bonus episode of the Fred Paul Show from London. Thanks to the crew back in Sydney for putting this episode together. I'll see you again on Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.